Turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're continuing in our study in the book of John. In case you are new to us, the reason why we are in the book of John is because we believe this time when everything seems to be a little bit uncertain in the world, when there are all kinds of perspectives, when, when the world is noisy and loud, when lots of things are going on and, and everybody else's voices seem loudest, we want to have Jesus' voice be loudest to us. We want to have him be our focus. We want to have him be center for us. And, and as a church and as a people, we center our lives on Jesus, and that's what keeps us grounded. You can have a million perspectives on things. Whatever your perspectives are, as long as they don't conflict with God's word, that's fine. But let's keep centered here on Christ. And so that's why we're in the book of John. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. I don't think there's a way to help, help, help the wind here, but I'll try to move underneath this maybe a little bit. Would that help? Is that better or worse? There we go. Um, John chapter 5, verses 30 to 47. This is God's holy inspired word. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment's just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has borne himself borne witness about me. His voice, though, you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Jesus, help us to believe your words. Enable us to believe your testimony. Enable us to believe the witnesses, the testimony to you, to who you are, that you are the Son of God, and enable us to base our whole lives on you as a reliable witness. And Lord, I, I, I pray that we would do that so that we might be saved, that we might receive life. And Lord, although we are, many of us here, already born again, I pray that we would receive your infusion of life, your fresh life each and every day as we continue to believe in you. And I pray that we would be more confident today in you and put away all confidence in ourselves as a result of hearing your word. In Jesus' name, God, enable us to 
to listen to the distractions through the mic popping, through the creatures in the background. God, enable us to listen through kids and all those things, Lord, and enable us to just glorify you. And God, would you encourage us today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we're younger, our, our earthly parents, they're a little like judges for us, aren't they? You know, they, they adjudicate what's right and wrong. They, they, they are the ones who take the rules out there and they, they give them to us and they give us rules and, and they give us rules to live by. Now, different parents have different rules to live by and some parents have lesser rules and some parents have greater rules. But every parent, to some degree, functions like a judge for their children telling their kids what's right and wrong. And then they adjudicate whether or not their kids have broken those rules, right? And, and if you don't have parents, but you have a guardian or a foster parent or whatever that is, um, even they, all, all of those who are over us, they function like a judge for us in a sense. But if you're like me, what happens when we get older is we get older. You know, when, when you're younger, first you think that, you know what, maybe your parents, they're always right. And then you start to get older and you realize that maybe they aren't always right. And then when you get a little older, somewhere between 16 and 20, you're really doubtful that they ever could be right. And then a little later, you have another evaluation of them, and you, you begin to evaluate them a little more fairly based on maybe your experiences. And if you have kids, then you can have a little more empathy towards them, and you evaluate them differently. But to some degree, we're all prone to that. We're all prone to setting ourselves up as judges over our parents as they once were judges over us. And, and to some degree, we have an ability to evaluate them because we too are humans. Uh, we too have the common shared experience. We, we have an outside rules of right and wrong that we can evaluate them by. But to some degree, we're still not qualified, right? Because we don't understand all of their unique temptations. We don't understand what they've gone through, their experiences, their situation, their challenges. We don't know the people around them, their influences, the things, the time they lived in. And so, you know, I think all of us to some degree have to say, you know what, I have some thoughts about my parents and how they raised me, but I understand that I might not see things clearly, and I understand that I might not be perfect in my evaluations, but I think we still do it. We still judge. When it comes to, when it comes to humans, this is very common, but it's also common when it comes to God because we can set ourselves up as if we are qualified to evaluate God, as if we're the judge of God, the creator of the universe, and that, that is sovereign over all of the earth. And you might be thinking, I know, I don't do that. I would never judge God. Let me ask you a question, though. How many times have you questioned God's goodness in your life? And you wondered, God, are you really good? Is God really good? God can't be really good. But why does God allow bad things to happen? If you had those kinds of questions, that just belies the temptation we all have to judge God. How many times have you questioned God's fairness, his love for you, whether he can really be trusted, his goodness? When we do that, it's like setting ourselves up at the bench. C.S. Lewis used to call it putting God in the dock. That's an English phrase for a place where they would put the person to be on trial. And so we go up on the bench and we say, God, we're going to evaluate you. But unlike our parents, we don't really have that right. We don't see clearly, but it's temptation for all of us. And it wasn't unique to, to us today. It was something that, that all humans at all time have been tempted to do ever since Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve really testing and judging God's word. Is God's word really true? Does what he say 
what what he said, can it really be trusted? We do the same thing. The Jews in this day, before you go on thinking that we're better than the Jews in Jesus' day, the Jews in Jesus' day, that's what they've just done. Jesus, the context for this passage is that Jesus just, just healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. He had sat there helpless by these waters of Shiloh, waiting for a miracle to happen that never happened. And, and, and Jesus comes to him, shows mercy. He wasn't seeking Jesus. He didn't even know who Jesus was. He doesn't respond rightly to Jesus. Jesus shows him abundant mercy, though, and heals him. And then he says, hey, take up your bed and, and go home. When he does that, the Jews, they see him carrying his bed, and they're like, wait a minute, that's wrong, instead of figuring out why. And then they come to Jesus, the, the judge, the creator, the one who is authority over all things, and they begin to judge him. And so now in this passage, what we see is that, that Jesus is, is in the dock, that he's on the defensive here, and that they're evaluating Jesus. And, and that's a temptation for all of us as well, is we have a temptation to evaluate Jesus, to evaluate God by our own standards, and that's what they're doing here. And we talked about that last week, and this is really just a continuation from last week. The Jews have judged Jesus, and they put him in the awkward place of Jesus defending himself. Now, for us, you kind of think, wow, who would ever do that? But I think we're all, at times, guilty of the same. And what John lays out in these verses is that what we do with this testimony, because that's what these verses are. These verses really are testimony of Jesus. Jesus now, he's representing himself. He's taking the Sixth Amendment and the right to represent himself, and he's saying, uh, now, by the way, the Sixth Amendment didn't exist in those days. I'm, I'm drawing a parallel. There wasn't any constitution back then. But Jesus is taking this right to, to defend himself, and he says, okay, I'm going to call myself as my own witness, but I realize, like, I, you know, you're not going to trust me if I do that, so I'm going to call some other witnesses. And he calls many other witnesses. He calls God as his witness. He calls John as his witness. He calls miracles as his witness. He calls the scriptures as his witness. And why is John doing that? John is trying to get us to see that what we do with the testimony of Jesus has lasting consequences. Not just for them in that day, what what they did with the testimony of Jesus had lasting consequences for them. But today, what we do with the testimony of Jesus has lasting consequences for us as well. And and then what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to reveal not only the testimony (coughs) that he gives, but he's also going to reveal why we don't accept it. He's going to reveal why we don't accept the testimony of Jesus. He He gives the Jews some insight into why they are right now, in that moment when he is facing them, why they're not accepting the testimony that he's revealed. And then he turns the tables on them and he says, hey, I don't have to judge you because someone else is going to. Someone else already is. You're going to be judged by your own standards and there's consequences to not accepting the testimony of Jesus. And the first thing that we see in this passage is that the testimony of Jesus, it can be trusted. The testimony of Jesus can be trusted. The bulk of the passage really is all to do with the testimony of Jesus in verse 30 all the way to verse 39. We see this testimony of Jesus about himself. And he provides this this self-attesting testimony to his hearers. Jesus, he's just healed this paralytic man. He told him to take up the bed and walk, and now he's being questioned. And and I, I can't imagine what the disciples would have been thinking as they're watching this unfold and they're watching the Jews question Jesus. Maybe they had in their own heads, what gives you the right 
to question Jesus, and that's not how Jesus responds. He doesn't want them to be unthinking in their response to him. He doesn't want them to be without cause to believe in him. He wants them to make sure that they know that there is cause for trusting in Jesus. And that's true for us today as well. Um, Christians are not to be unthinking individuals. Uh, if you ever hear the argument that, hey, just, just don't think about it. Just, just believe, well, that's not, that's not what, what God gives us. He gives us testimony about him that's to be thought about, that's to be applied, that's to be believed. Not only does Jesus provide testimony, he tells us in Romans from all the world around us, we can see that there must be a creator because there's an order in creation. Here in this passage, he gives a self-attesting testimony. He says, before this, he says, I and the Father are one. We are one. And, and by the way, the reason why, just like any person is called to give an account for their own actions, Jesus is called to give an account. He says in this passage, well, um, the reason why I can be trusted is because I don't do anything on my own will. I only do exactly what the Father wills. I am the judge, but I'm only judging based on the judgment of God. And yet he knows that that's not going to be accepted. And then in verse 31, he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Jesus isn't saying that his testimony isn't true. He's saying, just like in any court of law today, uh, you can't base a testimony on somebody who says, I didn't do it. You know, if you were to go to death row and ask any inmate there, most of them would claim innocence. And yet the majority of them probably are not. So he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony isn't deemed true. So I know that's true, so I'm going to call some, some witnesses. And he calls different kinds of witnesses here. He calls a character witness. And the, the first character witness that he calls is John the Baptist. You see, the Jews in that day, they were really enamored with John the Baptist. For us today, we can forget just how critical, how important John the Baptist was. Um, he was, uh, Jesus says, he was like a burning lamp, a burning and shining lamp. He, he shined brightly. God appointed John the Baptist. He shined like a lamp. He, what does that mean? He shined the truth of God on the people. And it was so bright that he illuminated their path. He showed them that they needed to repent and believe in God. And, and they rejoiced in that. They thought, great. Finally, after 400 years since Malachi, after 400 years now, God has been silent, but not silent anymore. Now we have a prophet. You see, prior to Jesus being revealed, they looked to John as a prophet in, in the vein of the Old Testament prophets. And so they rejoiced for a little while. Even the historian Josephus, he recorded that, that John's influence was immensely popular. And the Jewish people, they eagerly listened to him as, as he announced where the coming one was near. As he announced the coming of the kingdom of God and, and that his salvation, the giving of his spirit. But then the thing is, when John began to talk about a person that didn't look very impressive to them being the Lamb of God, they stopped listening. And yet Jesus is saying, you sent to John, you asked for his witness, and John gave you a witness. John testified that I am the Lamb of God. I'm the Son of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus calls their attention to that, to the Lamb of God, a burning and shining lamp. But like all of us, we can be tempted to shut our eyes to the truth when it doesn't go along with what we think it should be. It doesn't go along with our version of how we think things should go. And, and that was what the Jews did to John. They, they shut their eyes to this burning bright lamp. They refused to see who Jesus was. And yet Jesus points back and says, John bore witness to me. And John, he actually heard the Father speaking. That's what he's alluding to and, and the Father's voice being heard. John heard the Father's voice and he said, this is my son. Listen to him. 
This is my son with whom I well pleased. Listen to him. And John saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove. And so Jesus says, I'm calling testimony to John. And he doesn't stop there, though. He gives some evidentiary witness as well. In a court of law, he gives different types of witnesses. So he gives a character witness to John. He gives an evidentiary witness in, 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 in his, his works. Look in verse 36. The testimony I have is greater than that of John. For the works the Father has given me to accomplish, those very works I'm doing, bear witness about me the Father has sent me. What he's saying is, no one can do all of these types of works unless God is enabling him. The works don't prove he's the Son of God, but the works prove that God has sent him. And so far in John, we've seen quite a bit of works. We haven't seen everything he did, but they had. When John wrote later that if he was to write down all of the miracles and all the things that Jesus did, um, he would venture to say that all the libraries in the world could not contain those books. And so Jesus did many miracles that we're not aware of, that the Jews were aware of. But the ones that we're aware of so far in the book of John, he, he turns the water into wine. He shows that he replaces the rites of purification with his, own, with his own self, with his own blood. And then we look at the other works that Jesus did. He, he drove out the money changers from the temple grounds. He did many signs in Jerusalem after the Passover feast. And we don't know what those signs were exactly, but it says he did many signs, proving that he has authority over God's temple, and he's the one who has the right to tell men how to worship. And all these miracles were attested. For us today, we can forget that, that the miracles of Jesus were attested by many. They were proven by many. They were witnessed by many. They serve as witnesses to what he did. They were eyewitnesses, and, and even his enemies were eyewitnesses. Even in his trial in the last, um, his, his, his enemies admitted that he did wondrous things. But then they tried to flip it and said that they did him by the devil. Jesus says, all the works that I did, they prove. He's the one who healed this, this boy who was dying that we saw in the land of Galilee. He didn't have to go there. and He was showing he had authority over people no matter where they are. And his authority was just by his word alone. And so Jesus proved who he was. Only God does that. Only God makes a paralytic of 38 years to walk immediately. Only God can make the blind to see and the deaf to hear. And so Jesus calls this evidentiary witness and says, look, John the Baptist, I, I already told you what I think about myself, that I, I, I'm innocent, I'm true, I'm the judge. And then he says, here's what John the Baptist said. Here's the character witness. Now, now here's the evidentiary witnesses, but it doesn't end there. He has documentary witnesses as well. He says, I've got documents, I've got a journal. You know, maybe if someone's not present to bear witness, but yet they provide their journal, their account, or, or their deposition of how things happened, that can serve as another form of witness. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, you can't see God, but he's already given his, ev his documentary evidence. He's already given evidence of who I am through the Scriptures. Look down in your Bible. It says, the Father who has sent me born witness about, has borne witness himself about me. The problem is, he says, his voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen. And what he's telling them is in scriptures, whenever God has held out the hope of salvation and the promised one to come, that that was pointing to him. And he's saying that every time in the Old Testament when it pointed a, a chosen one to come, the Messiah, the one who would, who would meet all the expectations and longings of God's people, that that was evidence that was pointing to him. And that the Jews, they should have gotten that. They should have understood that. They should have understood that 
all of the countless prophecies in the Old Testament, they have come true in Jesus because to some degree they've already seen those things begin to come true. Clearly they didn't recognize Jesus as the Son of God. They haven't ever heard his voice or seen his, in his word. Sometimes we can read God's word as if he's not present. We can just read it like a pill to pop. And he says, no, you, you, want to, you need to read God's word to see him. It's to see God. It's to see Jesus revealed. There's a, an old preacher named R.C. Sproul who recently passed away. And I love he shared the analogy of how he, he saw a bumper sticker when he was going down the road. And in the back of this car, it said, uh, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I think it was probably, he's probably referencing like the 70s or 80s because I, I haven't seen that in probably 20 years. But when I was a kid, I remember seeing that God's, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And, and R.C. says, well, that, that, that's actually really proud. Because what we should believe is not that because God says it and we believe it, that settles it, but because God says it, that settles it. Because otherwise, it's us placing ourselves as a judge above God and as if that's our hope, that's our trust. God's witness, his word is the only witness we need. But the problem is, often we don't have his word abiding in us. That's what he tells the Jews in verse 38. Look down your Bible. It says, you do not have his word abiding in you if you do not believe the one whom he sent. What he's saying is, if you know God's word, if you read God's word, and you look and see all the promises of the promised one, the one who will fulfill the God's covenant, that points to him. And if you believe that, you would believe in Jesus. The other problem is that they were searching the scriptures, thinking that just reading the scriptures and keeping those rules is where they had life. We'll get to that in a little while. Last summer, we had the, the privilege of being able to go to the Grand Canyon, and then we got to stand in this observation tower that when we first came into the park, we went up in this observation tower, and you can look out the, this frameless, this windowless frame out onto the canyon, and it's beautiful, and it was, this tower is set up just so you can see the Grand Canyon. But imagine if you were up there and you're looking out this window at the Grand Canyon and somebody walks up and they're staring at the frame and they're investigating it and they, they scratch a little bit off of there and they say, oh, isn't this a wonderful frame? Isn't this great? Isn't this neat? And, and this frame is what the Grand Canyon is all about and you think they're a little nuts. <laughs> like, no. That, that frame is actually meant for us to see this beauty, to see the wonder. And yet sometimes we approach Scripture as if Scripture itself is the thing that we're to hold on to alone. Now, now, now hear me rightly. Scripture is our sole source of authority. Don't ever get that wrong. But Scripture is meant to point us to see Jesus. It's meant to point us to see God. It's not the end is not just being enamored with studying Scripture. The end is for us to see, look out that window of Scripture and behold God in the picture that it gives us. He says, you, you think, you search the scriptures because you think in them is life, but they bear witness about me. And then he tells them in verse 46, he says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Moses testified about the one who would come after him in Deuteronomy 18, 15. And, and Peter, he looks back on that and he uses the same argument that Jesus is using in Acts 3, 18. And Peter says, but, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And he, so he says, that's the basis for our believing in Jesus. 
And then in 20, verse 22 of, of Acts 3, he says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You will listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who doesn't listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Peter's saying the same thing. The whole scriptures in Moses, they point to who Jesus is. They bear evidence. They bear witness to Jesus. The problem is they weren't even listening to the evidence of Moses in whom they said they hoped. And they had to choose. What would they do with the testimony of Jesus? What would they do with Jesus' own personal testimony? What would they do with the testimony of, of John the Baptist? What would they do with the testimony of all of his miracles? What would they do with the testimony of God's own voice spoken to John? What would they do with the testimony of all of Scripture over thousands of years all being fulfilled in Jesus? What would they do with that testimony? And that's a question for us as well. What will we do with the testimony he provides to us? What will you do with the testimony? Will you trust him? Now, I know that the majority of people here have already put their trust in Jesus, but the reality is we are still tempted all the time to doubt his testimony. What will you do with it? Will you trust his testimony? Will you trust him? Well, the Jews didn't accept his testimony, and Jesus explains some reasons why we don't accept the testimony of Jesus. That's the second thing that you see, the second major truth that you see in this passage is that some reasons why we don't accept the testimony of Jesus. Look back for a moment in verse 39 when he said to them, he says, you search the scriptures. And that's searching there. It's, it, it's, it's the same imagery of someone who is, who is digging. You think, well, that's good, right? It's good to dig into scriptures. It's good to search scriptures. But he says your, your approaches are wrong. Your approaches. We can approach the scriptures wrongly. There's a problem of their approach. As you search the scriptures, because you think that just by searching scriptures that you'll get life in them. And he says, no, they bear witness about me. And what Jesus means here is that the scriptures reveal that life is in Jesus. Life is not in your daily quiet time just by the discipline of reading the Bible. Life, though, those daily quiet times, those daily disciplines are meant to help you encounter Jesus, the one who gives you life. And here's the good news. Life is in Jesus. And he holds his life out to us. But we need to approach his scripture rightly. They search the scriptures as if they're a road map to get their salvation on their own merit. You know, I think we can do the same thing, right? We can feel justified about ourselves if we're Reading the Bible, well, I read the Bible every day. I go to church. I, I do the things I'm supposed to do. For them, they, they went to the temple. They, they did all the rites that they were supposed to do. And, and they were almost paranoid about keeping the minutia of the law. That's why they're judging Jesus in the first place, because they were paranoid. If, if, if life depends on us keeping the law, and by the way, that's missing the point, Jesus says. But if life depends on us keeping the law, then we better be really careful not to break any laws. And that's what leads to legalism in our own lives. That's what leads to what we see, the excesses of, in this area, at least in the past, and fundamentalism and some of those things is, is this over-attention on, on how we live in externals because we better do everything right or else we won't be accepted by God. 
And Jesus says, if you're looking at scriptures that way, you're looking the wrong way. Now, scriptures are immensely important. That's why I love the work of people like the Bible Society and, and the Gideons in distributing the scriptures to people so that they can receive from God's word. But it's with a goal. It's with the goal of receiving God's word so that we receive and see Jesus. It's how we approach the scriptures is highly important. And, and they, they were believing that, really subtly, that how they lived earned their salvation. And that wasn't the point of the law at all. The point of the law was to reveal that they could never earn their salvation, but it was a means of grace to give them an ability to approach God so that they might receive life from Him. Instead, they, they twisted it to be a means by which they had merit to stand before God. We can do the same thing. We want to take credit. We want to take credit. We want, proudly want to be good enough and earn it on our own. Just like the Jews, they confronted Jesus. Makes it easy to understand why they might accept false prophets who speak with similar language. And, and false prophets today, why? You wonder, why are false prophets accepted today? Well, it's because they have the same message of self-achievement that appeals to our basest instinct. To want to have some merit on our own, we're all tempted to legalism in that way. We're all tempted to want to self-justify. After all, if eternal life is dependent on our obedience, we better not get anything wrong. And so um, we want to listen to how other people who say they got it right. Our obedience, though, is not the basis for receiving eternal life. Being good enough will never earn us eternal life. And if you're here today, you might be laboring under other people's laws, under the law, under rules, and Jesus wants to set you free and says, don't approach my work that way. Approach it to see that you can never attain righteousness on your own, but I provided a way, there's hope in me. All the people who think they've lived a good life, I remember back in the, the early 90s, we used to go around giving people this two-question test. We would tell, we'd tell them, we'd say, hey, um, do you believe you're going to heaven? And we'd ask them why. And, and often the response from them was, well, because I, I basically lived a good life. I've tried to be pretty hard, and I think God would understand. As if the measure is our measure. But that's not the measure that God uses. The measure that God uses is actually ultimate perfection. And that's something we can never attain, but that's why he sent Jesus. That's why all the scriptures reveal this need for Jesus. And he says, if you read the scriptures rightly, you would have seen that they bear witness about me. And yet, the irony was that Jesus, the judge of all, their creator, was standing before them, and they were judging him. What a tragedy. They were standing in the presence of the one in whom all scriptures pointed to for eternal life, and they were opposing him instead of receiving him in the life that he offered. And, and often we do that too. We oppose him whenever we put confidence in our own flesh. We oppose him when we reject his scriptures as testifying about him. We oppose him when we don't look to him for life. How are to use scriptures? We search the scriptures to see Jesus because all the scriptures point to Jesus because he is the one in whom we have life. That's our hope each and every day. 
as we search the scriptures, we should ask, what do they reveal about Jesus? Um, how do they testify about him? Because he is the one whom is their eternal life. There, there's, it's no good to study scripture and memorize it and follow it if we don't find Jesus in it. Imagine searching for a treasure your whole life, and then at the end of your life finding that that treasure never really existed. That's the futility of looking for life in law-keeping. And yet there is a greater treasure, a treasure that truly exists, that's worth giving our whole life for, that's worth giving up everything for and trusting in, because the treasure is eternal life in Christ. Now, sometimes we have to search the scriptures to find Jesus, and it takes work, and we have to spend time in them and make an effort because they reveal Jesus. But that reward is greater than any earthly treasure because in him we find life. Jesus, next, he goes on to point out a problem of motives. Look down at verse 40. He says, you refuse to come to me. You refuse. You're proud. You refuse to come to me. You set yourself up as the own standard. Your, your own standard is what you're motivated by. You refuse to acknowledge the truth, to humble yourself, to receive life. And he tells them in verse 41, he says, I don't, I don't need your approval. I don't, it's not that, I, not that I receive glory from men. It's not that it's important to him that, that, that somehow it adds value to Jesus as if he, he needs their approval or glory to validate who he is. And Jesus is not bummed out here in this interaction that, that he, he doesn't feel sorry for himself that, that they don't give him glory. His worth or his value wasn't tied up in what people thought about him. Now, as a total aside, it's not the main point of the text, but I, if our identity is in Christ, then I think that's going to be our reaction to others as well. Unlike Jesus, so often our identity is and value can be tied up in what people think about us and whether they give us glory. But he, wasn't, he wasn't dependent on giving, receiving glory from people. He didn't live for their approval. He lived to give glory to God. And he, and he says no matter what people thinks of him, think of him, it, it won't add or detract from his worth. He says, I don't, I don't receive glory from people, but I know that you have do not have the love of God within you. And it was evident, what he's saying is it's evident that they didn't love God because they didn't listen to God's word. They didn't obey God's word about his son. They didn't respond to the testimony of Jesus. And so it's evident if you claim to love God, but you don't love his word and you don't love the one he sent, then you have no love of God in you. We read God's word, but we don't respond to him in faith. It reveals what we love. We don't receive Jesus for who he is, and we look to him for, I mean, we'll look to ourselves as our, as our own authority instead of looking to him as our authority reveals who we love. When we don't come to Jesus to find life, it reveals what we love. When we look to other places for life, it's revealing what we're loving. When we're not seeking to glorify Jesus, it reveals what we're loving. Often, it's our own glory. And that's what Jesus is telling them in this passage as well. He says, I've come in my Father's name. You're not giving me glory. You're not receiving me. But if somebody else comes in their own name, you're going to receive him. You know, that's why the, the problem today is so many false prophets, they come in their own name. They come testifying about themselves that they are coming in God's name. They're giving answers outside of Christ. People don't receive Jesus coming in the Father's name. They receive their names instead, the names of people like Buddha or Krishna or Joseph Smith or Charles Russell or Sun Young Moon or L. Ron Hubbard or David Koresh or another false prophet. 
And then he says, he explains to them how that, that glory principle is related to receiving him, seeking their own glory, not giving him glory is related. And look down at verse 44. He says, how can you believe? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? How can you believe when, when your life is being lived as if glory from people is most important, as you are living to find your identity, your worth, your value, and what other people think about you? He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Don't seek the glory that comes from only God. It's like Jesus is saying, you know, you honor each other, but you're not seeking the glory that comes from God. You're proud, you're full of yourselves, and you're seeking glory from each other, and that's where you're looking for value. He says, no wonder you have a hard time believing. How can you when, when what you're seeking is honor from other people, not honoring God, his prophet, his testimony, his word? It's an important message for us today as well. Seeking worth in ourselves keeps us from seeking worth and receiving worth in Jesus. Seeking worth in what we've done, how good we are, our accomplishments, what people think about us. Seeking worth in our own identity apart from Christ, that keeps us from seeking and receiving the worth and glory of God. There's an old guy named John Calvin, and he says, teaching that the door of faith is shut this is what this passage is teaching. This passage is teaching that the door of faith is shut against all whose minds are filled with a vain desire for earthly glory. For he who wants to be something in the world cannot help but becoming wandering and transient. So what he means is you're, you're looking all around here for the glory of the world and so that he will not move towards God. A man's only prepared to obey the heavenly teaching when he is convinced that the chief thing to be sought in all his life is God's approval. And that approval is found in Christ alone. He goes on to say, it's this vanity alone that swells us with false presumption that we rely more on our own judgment and that of others than of God's. Now that God should be capital G in your outline, sorry. It says, he who really presents himself before God, his judge, must by necessity fall broken down and humbled, giving up all glory of your own. He says, thus, for any man to seek glory from God alone, he must be overwhelmed with shame, but don't end there, and fly to the free mercy of God. Those who look to God see they are condemned and lost. There's nothing left for them to glory in but the grace of Christ. He says, the desire for such glory will ever be joined with humility. When you humble yourself that way, seeking not glory from man, you receive the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And he tells them there's some consequences. Look down at verse 45. There's consequences to not accepting the testimony about Jesus. There's consequences to not accepting the testimony about Jesus. And he says, don't think that I, I accuse you to the Father. That doesn't mean he's not going to judge him. He says, I don't have to. I don't have to accuse you before the Father because the very thing you're hoping in, that accuses you. He says, there's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. They set their hope on Moses, on the scriptures, on keeping the Mosaic law, keeping the commandments. They set their hope on keeping the commandments. And he says, I don't even have to judge you because there's no way you're going to do that. Moses himself accuses you. I don't, I don't need to do that. Whatever you put your hope in ultimately will accuse you because that hope is not, doesn't get you what you think it does. If you're hoping in your own self-attainment, there's no way... You, you can say, yes, I, I have perfectly in every way done everything as I should. 
I've 100% kept all the laws in the Bible. I have, I have lived a perfect life. I've never messed up. If that's what your hope, your standard is in, he says, that's going to accuse you. If your hope's in your own mental ability, that's going to accuse you because your mental ability fails. If your hope, your standard is in your own self-righteousness, your own self-sufficiency, your merit, your worth, how good you are, what you do, that's going to accuse you. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus is not going to hold you accountable, that he's not going to judge you. But what are you setting your hope in is what you see as God. Ultimately, it will accuse you. It reveal the weakness of your hope. So how do we approach him? How do we approach the judge? Do we set ourselves up as judge over him? Do you, do you think as if or act as if God is not good? Do you trust in your morals? Your morals are going to stand against you. You trust in your mind. You've got a corrupt mind. You were led astray. Trust in your experience. Your experience will fail. It is not trustworthy. Reject Jesus, and the thing you hope in is enough to accuse you. And there's eternal consequences here. Either you'll be accused, or you'll come to Jesus, he says, and receive life. Life for each and every day. Hope and a confidence for each and every day that you have new life each new day. So what are you hoping in today? Embrace the life we have. Embrace Christ. Let's pray, and then I want to sing, My, my Hope is Built on Nothing Less. Jesus, thank you for giving us your testimony, your witness about who you are. I pray that we would set aside all other hopes. I pray that where we have put ourselves, set ourselves up as your judge, we would confess that. We would humble ourselves. We would forsake hoping in ourselves. We would forsake hoping in, in what we can figure out. We would say, forsake hoping in, in our own abilities, our own rationale, our own mind, our own experiences. We forsake hope in anything else. And we would come to you to receive life. Receive hope. We need hope each and every day. God, this world is, is so hopeless. And God, when we look around the troubles in the world, we can, we can lack hope. So Lord, I pray that we would look to you, Jesus, to see that there is hope in each and every day. There's hope for us to face each day. There's hope for us in the midst of all the problems of the world. There's hope in the midst of all the brokenness and all these circumstances because there's hope in you, Jesus, that is secure, that is solid. I pray that you enable us to stand on that in Jesus' name.